This is season two of Instant Coffee, where we explore everything related to food in the Middle East. I'm Riva Sleiman Haider. And I'm Nadine Almanasfi. And together we want to understand how food is shaping people's writing, thinking, and organizing in the region. On this episode, we spoke with Mana Shamshiri, philosophy graduate and creator of the website and Instagram platform, The Iranian Vegan. Like many of us, Mana started The Iranian Vegan as a side project at the start of lockdown. She wanted to create a platform to showcase the diversity of Iranian cuisine, as well as provide a space for vegans of color and those who aren't from traditionally vegetarian backgrounds. 18 months later, she has gathered almost 11,000 followers and the numbers are still growing. With the rise of veganism in recent years, companies, chefs and amateur cooks have been advertising Middle Eastern food as vegan friendly. We've seen this with hummus, tabbouleh, baba ghanoush and many other recipes. But what about Iranian food? Was Mana returning to her roots or adapting a cuisine that heavily revolves around meat and dairy? We began by asking Mana a bit more about veganism itself and what it looks like in today's day and age. Mostly it's kind of been dominated by an idea of Western veganism, in the West at least. And I think it's something that I've been very aware of and a lot of other content creators um, from you know communities of colour and minority communities who live in the West have kind of been trying to raise awareness about how, um, for example, veganism didn't originate in the West. And there is a lot of history um, of veganism within our own communities. And that's kind of what we've been trying to amplify and show, um, but also show that, like, for example, for me, being vegan and Iranian can coexist and can coexist very beautifully. It doesn't need to be a paradox. And it isn't a paradox, in fact, because of this fact that it has you know, existed within our history for centuries. Mana's father moved to the UK when he was a teenager and her mother arrived after the Iranian revolution. Despite her parents not visiting as often, Mana makes sure to go back to Iran regularly. It's it's really important for me to go um, in a different way because it helps me understand like what 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 was all of that? What was all that noise? What were all those flavors? What was all the talk? What was all of that growing up? Like this is it. This is where it originates from. All of those memories that my parents talked about. This this is where it all is. This is where my family is. So we definitely all do go back. But I think in general, and just thinking about my Iranian community, like the adults, yeah, much less so in the recent years. As a second-generation Iranian in the UK, Mana says her visits to Iran help her better understand her culture and her roots. But for many migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers who have recently left their countries, the relationship to food is different. In a recent article for Getty News, Mana explores the connection between food and healing in migrant communities. It's different for me as a second generation migrant because the way I see it, I'm kind of trying to reach out to something which is almost slipping away. And because I love it so much and I value its history and I value the richness of it so much, I'm I'm trying to continue it despite being away from Iran. That's the way that food goes beyond sustenance for me. It goes beyond just survival because it's it's me understanding myself and connecting to my community. But it's it's also that, but I think on such a stronger level for for migrants and refugees and asylum seekers, like first generation migrants, refugees and asylum seekers who have experienced expulsion from their land and use food as a tool to reconnect with it. 
so this article that I wrote with Diva Garg went into um, ideas about how food is really linked to feeling secure, feeling safe, feeling loved, you know, moments we share with family because food is such a social thing. For example, in, in Iran and, and other surrounding countries, they are collectivist societies rather than individualistic societies. So the group experience is such a plays such a huge role and group happiness and group well-being is prioritised over the individual. Them being able to cook their own food and share it with people and share those moments and remember those moments in which they were with their community, kind of like a healing thing for them. Um, that's what we found from this article. For example, the situation with asylum seekers is that they don't have agency over cooking and eating their own food. They have to eat what they're given. You know, I, I support asylum seekers and refugees. And I get that a lot from them. It's There's so much complaint or upset about the horrible bland food that they have to eat because it's not just food it goes so beyond that it's just so important into, into making people feel at home really and for people whose home has been ripped away from them it's just such an important tool in in healing as I said but in very different ways I recognize for me and a person um, who is you know might have just arrived or has been here for a few years it's reported that over 60% of Iranians currently live in poverty. Their wages are only enough to cover a third of their living costs. Today, the inflation rate is at 46%, up from only 10% in May 2018, when the US pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Ronshi Tazmini, visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center, told us more about the effect this has had on food security in Iran. After the United States pulled out of the 2015 nuclear agreement and reimposed sanctions against Iran in 2018, Iran's food market has seen unprecedented inflation, um, which has had a serious effect on the food security of Iranian households. For the average Iranian family, it's been a struggle to keep up with rising food prices and even in some periods, food shortages. The price of beef, chicken, dairy products, eggs and even fruit have skyrocketed, so many Iranian households have been priced out. They simply cannot afford meat or other vital foodstuffs. Even, you know, when my mum was young, my grandma, when they couldn't afford meat, she would make the same stews, the same khoresh, but without the meat. So it's something that has, you know, always been there, but definitely is, is I'm seeing it and I'm hearing it more happening in Iran at the moment. I've had followers reach out to me to to say this exact thing, to say like, oh, we can't afford meat. So that's why, um, please, can you translate your recipes into Farsi? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And that's kind of why that that came about, why I started to translate my recipes into Farsi, because I realized there wasn't just a need or an audience which I was trying to cater to here which was people like me and trying to to reconnect with our culture but also people in Iran who are basically eating vegetarian or, or veganism because they have to. As well as the turn to veganism through necessity, Mana also adds that there are a lot of younger Iranians becoming vegan for ethical reasons. There aren't any animal welfare regulations as such in Iran so there is a growing movement of people who are just really interested in in advocating for animal rights and for example the last time that I went to Iran like maybe two years ago now I was taken to a vegan restaurant which was literally the best restaurant that I've been the best vegan restaurant that I've been to it was so nice 
it was so nice and you know there's like there are options so I can definitely see it growing there as well which is really lovely to see. Are there other young British Iranians or other Iranians in the diaspora for example who are interested in what you're doing? Um, have they also started do you think exploring Iranian veganism? You know that's what's so amazing about social media because I see them there like I know they exist because of social media because they follow me and they message me well, like we message each other about about these things and the difficulties that we've had with our families and in integrating and getting them to accept us so there is a growing interest I think in in young Iranians so I'm just happy to be able to share these resources I don't actually know any other Iranian vegans in real life they're they're all people who are very distant on the internet but I'm hoping that you know that will grow so you said that you became vegetarian at 15 I imagine it must have been very difficult for your parents to accept that first did it help at all that your sister your older sister had been vegetarian before you and she kind of paved the way for you she became vegetarian three years before me also at the age of 15 and I remember her coming home one day with all of these like petal leaflets like Mana look at this horror that was happening and abuse and, and mistreatment of animals so I was really lucky that she kind of she I think dealt with the difficulty of the wrath of the parents before me but I think once I also joined her it was a battle with our parents at the beginning they didn't necessarily respect what we had or the food that we wanted to eat but to be honest, I think I'm very thankful because it was a small period before they started to understand why this was the case. But that's immediate family. I feel like immediate family are more loving than <laughs> extended family. And to this day, to this day, every time I'm at a family gathering, Mana, why aren't you eating meat? Mana, don't you want some chicken? Mana, don't you want some meat? It'll be really good for you. Like my grandparents, my aunties, my uncles, um, and I'm like, no, honestly, it's been eight years. I'm okay. I feel like if, if I had made that decision, I would have told you by now. I'll let you know. It is difficult for Mana's family and the older generation of Iranians to understand why she became vegan. But Mana tells us of the history of veganism in Iranian culture that goes back hundreds of years. She recalls one story from the Shahnameh. It's not an exaggeration if I say Iranians are identified by the Shahnameh. It's not only the greatest Persian epic, but also one of the greatest epic books in the world. The Shahnameh was written in about 900 years ago by Abu al-Qasim Ferdowsi, but it covers a long history of Persian civilization. When I say history, I don't mean the Shahnameh is a history book, no, at all. This is Ali Reza Siddiqui. He is a Persian language teacher at SOAS, also working at the Asian and African Language Department at the British Library. After Islam came to Iran, many Iranian scholars chose to write their books in Arabic because they could have broader readers in the Islamic world. In such a time, Ferdowsi started to write the Shahnameh and used only pure Persian words in his work. In all nine volumes, Ferdowsi used less than 800 Arabic words. According to many scholars and even Persians, uh, if Ferdowsi didn't write the Shahnameh, Persian language wouldn't survive. 
the story is essentially about a king. His name is King Zehar. And Iranians were, you know, vegetarians at the time. And essentially the devil comes in disguise and the devil is dressed as this this chef. And he's like, well, I want to cook you some delicious meals. Please, will you let me? He says, of course. So the chef makes him these delicious meals. And day by day, the, the dishes become even more delicious for the king. And every time the devil is adding in more meat and more dairy. And the king is, he he's so in love by the end of this week that he's like, how can I ever repay you? to this character called Ahriman, who is, you know, he's in disguise. And Ahriman says, I don't want anything, just want one thing, something very small. I want you to plant a kiss on each of my shoulders, just one on each side. And he says, okay, of course I'll do that. So the devil kisses him on each of his shoulders and these two black serpents come out. Essentially, King Zahak can't get rid of these serpents. These serpents are there forever until he is alive. The serpents are alive. And a doctor, which again is the devil in disguise, tells him that the only way that he can keep himself alive and not killed by these serpents is to feed the brains of two young men from the village every single day to these serpents. And so he does that. And later in the history, there's uproar, there's protest, they take down King Zahak and, you know, restore peace to the the village. But it's a really interesting story for me about the origins of meat eating and how actually it's a sin. It's just based on greed and gluttony and it's something which was introduced by the devil. I also wanted to ask you about how you describe your work. There are a lot of terms that you use like compassion, love, honour, ethics... And you describe your food and cooking in a very emotive way. Um, Did these ideas come with you when you adopted a vegan lifestyle? Or did you have this connection to cooking as a child and through your upbringing? Food in Iranian culture is just such a huge thing for our culture and the collective and the way that, for example, we show our affection or our love by feeding our guests. You always have to make too much so they can be, you know, you make sure that your guests are really, really full. You know, you always make so much effort with the food because that's a way of showing love. And that's the way that I was taught about food and what I learned food was. Breaking bread together, I think, um, is a really important way to, to bond. And it's something that's really present in our culture. And I think it also just adds to like a shared sense of identity and a shared sense of community. And so when I became vegan, I I didn't want to abandon that and I didn't want to leave that behind. And I wanted to carry through this beautiful expression of love and connection to my culture, like being so far away from Iran and having this conflicting ideas of identity, like being an Iranian and raising such a with such a rich and strong culture in the household, it was so important for me to continue that. In terms of compassion, thinking about compassion, I think compassion is something which has always just been present within me. I studied philosophy, you know, throughout high school, A-level, university, and I think a philosophy of compassion for me is really important and trying to create the least harm in every every circumstance and every situation as much as we can because I also recognize that not everybody has a particular privilege to be able to do that so to the extent that we can trying to create the least harm harm possible and and doing the most loving thing possible in every every situation and every circumstance. Although Mana's focus is Iran her philosophy is universal she encourages all to think about the origins of food where exactly is what we're consuming coming from what impact does it have on the planet 
on animals and on others? From an ethical perspective, animals, um, I don't, I think they are so valuable. I think all life is so valuable and they don't deserve to be kind of treated in the way that we do because there is a mass demand for meat and dairy. So the way that they are treated are as objects. There is no consideration for for them at all. And I think their lives are devalued. And what's interesting to me is also how people, you know, if you spend a day with a cow or a pig or any animal, I guarantee that you will see that that, that animal has a sense of self. That animal has a sense of self. That animal has a personality. It feels pain. It feels happiness. It expresses emotions. And there's almost like this discrimination between animals as well. Like we love dogs, but we hate cows. Or we, you know, if you if you tell the average person, maybe in this country, like, would you kill and eat a dog they're horrified they're absolutely horrified because they've had connection with those animals and they recognize that like there's someone in there so from an ethical standpoint I just think we can just create a lot less suffering by choosing a vegan lifestyle Um, and also the environment I think is just such an important thing at the moment literally as we're all witnessing the earth is on fire like there's no other way to put it we're in a climate emergency we're in a climate crisis there was a a University of Oxford study a couple of years ago, which showed that one of the biggest ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint is through leading a vegan diet. And that's because meat and dairy produce a very small percentage of food for a very small percentage of people in the globe, but they use the largest amount of land. And we could be using that land for crops that could feed a lot a lot more people. Um, and obviously because of methane being one of the biggest emitters of co2 it's such a a powerful way that we can take back power like even though we know that corporations are the ones that are creating the most harm in this situation we can take that power by changing our dietary choices even if it's a little bit i think i would encourage but i'm just really hopeful for for all of these other young vegans from different ethnic backgrounds as well um kind of diversifying the scene and letting people know that we can have our cultural foods and we can continue our heritage and we can be kind to animals and the environment and our health thank you for tuning into instant coffee a podcast brought to you by the lse middle east center join us every other tuesday for a new episode of instant coffee To learn more about Mana and her work, follow the links in the podcast description. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. Please make sure to like, comment and give us five stars.